The Easter season recounts the preparation of Jesus as the Passover lamb and moves from the sacrifice on the cross to the celebration of a risen Savior. What did the cross and resurrection achieve? In a word, life. Christ's saving work on our behalf is the good news of eternal life, and this good news calls each of us to faith and repentance. Christianity rests on the certainty of Jesus' resurrection. Just as Jesus said, Because I live, you also will live. We all have a tendency to boast a little bit, don't we? I mean, if we're honest, we all have a little bit of that uh, need or desire for someone to know what I have accomplished, what I have achieved, what I have been able to do on my own. And I have to be honest, I have that same tendency as well. I'm, I, I want to be transparent. I, I can struggle with you know, wanting people to know what I have done. I'll give you a little, little example. It was about a little over three years ago, and we needed a new dishwasher. Our dishwasher was, I think, about 20 years old at the time, and we just needed a new one, time to get a new one. So we went to Lowe's or Home Depot, one of those, and we had figured out kind of which one we wanted, and we were talking with the salesperson and kind of wrapping up the deal, and, and the salesperson says, well, would you like us to install that for you? I'm like thinking, yeah, of course. How much would that be? It's 200 and something dollars. I don't remember the exact amount. And I looked over at my wife and I said, Macy, I think I can do this. <laughs> Had I ever installed a dishwasher before? Absolutely not. Uh, plum plumbing kind of scares me. I'm not the handy, handy person you know, at all. That's like not my gift. I don't go around fixing things in the house or building things. That's not me. But $200 is a lot of money. And I'm like, I think I can do this. Me and Google and YouTube, we can figure it out. Well, it showed up, you know, several weeks later, and I'll have to say, I installed that dishwasher. And it's still working today. Yes, uh-huh. And I'm still bragging about it. <laughs> you see how easy it is to fall into that trap of boasting? And, and if you're competitive, you really have to watch out, right? Because, you know, somebody will just share what they've done, and you've got to one-up them, you know? Have you ever been around the one-upper? You know, you, you, know they, you say, well, I, I ran a, a 5K race in 18 minutes. And they'll say, well, I did 18 minutes in uh, third grade. You know, they, they one-up you. Or maybe you just had a knee replaced and you said, man, I just had it replaced and eight weeks later, I'm, I'm doing great. And the person goes, well, I had both replaced and in four weeks, I was up and running. You know, it's that, that competitive, I want to outdo you. Now, some of you are saying, no, I'm not a, I'm not a boaster. I'm not, I don't have a competitive bone in my body. I'm not like that. Well, think about it. If you are a parent, I have a feeling you have some pride in your children, right? You tend to boast in that. And for those of you that are grandparents out there, don't tell me you don't boast about your grandkids. I hear it all the time. I see the pictures all the time. I know you like to talk about your grandkids. We all have that propensity to boast. And I think it's that... I know it comes from our sin nature and that desire, that, that pride that comes up. But Paul says something in Galatians that deals specifically with this. And this is not our main passage we're going to look at. We're going to be in Romans chapter 5 today. But in Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, Paul says this. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul's dealing with some boasters in the, in the church, and they're boasting even in religious things. But Paul says, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm not going to boast about anything except, and what's his exception? 
His exception is the cross. I'll boast in the cross. I'll glory in the cross. I will boast about what Christ has done for me. And so the question I would ask this morning is, what are you boasting about? What are you boasting about? Or better yet, when's the last time you boasted in the cross? When's the last time that that you were so excited about what Jesus had done for you on the cross that you found yourself boasting about Jesus, glorying in Jesus, sharing with others what Christ had done for you? And I think the challenge for all of us, because we know how to boast, right? That's not the problem. It's what are we boasting in? And that's the challenge I want to look at this morning. Because why would Paul say in this verse that I boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ? Why boast in the cross? Well, Paul knew, because Paul taught on this a lot, but even the early Christians, they grasped the weight and the depth and the significance of the cross in their faith. They understood it so much that the cross became the symbol for Christianity, right? We've got one right here. Most churches have one or two or three. Many of you wear a cross. The cross has survived some 2,000 years as a symbol for Christianity. But go back to that first century when that cross represented a horrific death. Why would they pick something that most people were scared to even say the word because they knew it was central to the faith. They knew it was critical to them, to, 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 to Christianity. They knew just how important the cross was. And that's why Paul would say, far be it for me to boast in anything except in the cross. And so this morning, I want us to answer that question. Why should I, why should you boast in the cross? And the big idea answers that question. But then we're going to see how that big idea is derived from the passage we're going to look at in Romans chapter 5 in just a minute. But here's the big idea. We boast in the cross. Why? Because of God's amazing love demonstrated through his atoning work on the cross. We boast in the cross because of God's amazing love demonstrated through God's atoning work there on the cross. And so we want to we unpack this big idea as we go through Scripture and see why we should be boasting in the cross. Because on the cross, we see, Roman number one, God's amazing love. God's amazing love. Let me, let me read uh, the first few verses in our passage. Romans chapter 5 is where we are, and we're going to begin in verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, I'm calling this amazing love, and so I want to be able to prove my point of just how amazing this love that God has for us truly is. And I think the key to it is in verse 8 when he says that in that while we were still sinners while we were still sinners. That's what we were when God showed his love. You see, we often define love, and I say we, I'm thinking culturally, as I love you when you love me, and when you love me, I love you. But we have a hard time when we say, well, I'm going to love you, but you're not giving me any love back. Or when I love you, and not only are you not giving me any love back, but you're actually fighting against me, 
What's the world going to say at that point? And what are most people going to do? Well, I'm just, I'm out of this. If they're not going to, if they're going to treat me like this, I'm gone. And you see, that's the, that's somewhat of the illustration we see here in the love that God has for us. Because as we're going to see in just a moment that we were, as sinners, totally opposed and rebelling against God. And yet, even in that rebellion, he loved us. Aren't you glad he loved us even in your rebellion? Amen. So let's look, let's unpack this, these, uh, these first few verses. And, and we're going to start with letter A, his unconditional love. His unconditional love. And Paul uses these words here to describe what our condition is outside of Jesus Christ. I had someone ask me a couple uh, weeks ago, how come there aren't any uh, blanks anymore on the sermon outlines? You know, we, we've started distributing those. Do y'all remember the blanks we used to have on there? All right, well, there's still no blanks. However, I'm going to give you three phrases that'll go under letter A. If you, and you can pretend, you can draw blanks if you want. Okay, one blank, two blank, three blank. If you, if you just want to get back into the swing of blanks. Not promise anything in the future, but today we're going to let you fill in your own made, homemade blanks. So here's what we see in our condition before Christ. The first thing is we see that we are weak. We are weak. Verse 6, he says, while we were still weak. And that word probably could better be translated without strength or powerless. And the reason is because when we hear the word weak, we often think, well, I'm, just, I'm feeling a little weak today. I'm not 100%. You know, maybe I'm 90%. Use the analogy, if you go to the gym, if you normally are grabbing a weight that weighs 100 pounds, yeah, I better back off and only grab an 80-pound weight. You know, today I'm feeling a little weak. That's not the way that Paul is using this word at all. This is, this is power. This is, you go to the gym and you go to grab the weight and you can't even pick up any weight. You probably can barely even grab it. In fact, Paul in Ephesians 2.1 says that we were dead in our transgressions and our sins. That's, that's, how, that's how weak and powerless we are when it comes to doing anything on our own to achieve favor with God, to merit God's grace, God's salvation. There's nothing, absolutely nothing. We are weak, powerless, without strength. That's our condition. We are weak. The second thing is we are ungodly. He says in the last part of that verse, he says, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And that word ungodly also has the implication that we are unrighteous, that we are unloving, that we are at odds against God. He'll actually use the word enemy later on down in verse 10. But that's, that's our status outside of Christ, that we are, they are weak and we are ungodly, unrighteous. And so you're seeing this picture build of who we are, that we are weak without power to do anything on our own, that we're ungodly, that we're unrighteous, that we're in rebellion against God. And he doesn't stop there. In verse 8, he says... We are sinners. We are sinners. To sin means to miss the mark, right? That we have missed the mark that God has given us. We missed the mark. But to be a sinner means you're constantly in the stage of missing the mark. Can anybody relate to that? I know I can because I sometimes feel like I'm constantly in that, that, that cycle of missing the mark over and over and over and over. But again, Paul is painting this picture of our condition, of who we are, that we are that we are weak and powerless to save ourselves, that we are ungodly, that we are unrighteous, that we are in rebellion against God, that we are sinners missing the mark over and over and over again. And it's in that state that God demonstrated his love for us. That just blows my mind, that kind of amazing love, undeserving love that God has for us. And truly, I think it's a wonderful exercise for every believer in Christ 
to spend time recognizing our true condition, our true sinful condition outside of Christ. Because as the more we focus on that, the greater his love. That backdrop paints the picture of God's amazing love. And I'll be honest, I started to really think about that. How could God love a sinner like me? How? How in the world? I know my heart. I know my thoughts. How could God love a sinner like me? And the more I think about think about that. The more I meditate on God's amazing grace and mercy to love a sinner like me, the more overwhelmed I, I become. And I would encourage you this season as we prepare to celebrate the resurrection, that we start first at the cross and what God did in demonstrating his amazing, unconditional love for a sinner like me and a sinner like you. Kind of the application as I think about that is that as God demonstrated that love for me, I am commanded to love others, right? In fact, we saw this a few weeks ago in John chapter 13. Jesus said, a new command I give you to love one, what? Another, to love one another. And he goes on to say, just as I have loved you, love one another. That was the command that we've been giving to been given to love. And we talk a lot about what love means, the definition. Pastor Russell gave it again last week, that love is that unconditional, self-sacrificial commitment to the well-being of another person, right? And you notice the unconditional aspect. Just as God has loved me, an undeserving sinner, unconditionally, I am to love my brothers and sisters unconditionally as well. Even when they are unloving, even when it's difficult, even when it's hard, we are called to love one another. But the other side of that, or the second part of that, is we are to do it in a self-sacrificial way, which leads me to letter B, his sacrificial love. Because God, God demonstrated his amazing, unconditional love to me, but he did it through a sacrifice, a sacrifice. There in verse 8, it says, God shows his love for us, ultimately by Christ dying for us. That's the sacrificial nature of God's love for sinners. And it's best seen at the cross and what Jesus did for us. Christ died for us. We talk about sacrifice and we talk about it in terms like, you know, I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to have to sacrifice, uh, you know, an extra hour of, uh, of watching TV so I can spend more time with my, my kids, or I'm going to have to cut back buying the brand name so I can save a little money and I'm going to buy the generic. And we talk about the sacrifices we make in our time and our, our resources, our money, things that matter the most to us. We talk about these sacrifices. But as I thought about that, even the sacrifices that I think I'm making are big sacrifices. They just so pale in comparison to the sacrifice that God made in sending his son, Jesus Christ, into this world to die on the cross for my sin. That's a sacrifice. That's a costly sacrifice. It cost him his son. That's a rare sacrifice because it cost him his only son. That's an expensive sacrifice because it cost him Jesus' blood shed on the cross for my sin. That's the kind of love, that amazing love that I don't deserve. I'm so undeserving. But yet God demonstrated his love in the most amazing way through a sacrifice of his son on the cross. And we'll talk about what all took place on the cross in just a minute. But I want to make sure we get a grasp, get a, at least begin to think about this amazing love that God has for us that is so undeserving on our, on our behalf. But yet God loves us in that way. 
He gives a little commentary in verse seven if we're struggling still with this understanding of sacrifice. He says, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. In other words, it's hard to sacrifice a big sacrifice for a good person, much less somebody that doesn't like us, right? And so once again, he's pointing to the depth of the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross for us. And really, to grasp this kind of love, the unconditional aspect and the sacrifice aspect starts with recognizing my condition as a sinner, that I was born a sinner, I have committed sin, I am a sinner, and it's in that backdrop that God gave this unconditional, undeserving love in a sacrificial way on the cross for me. We too are to love unconditionally and sacrificially those people around us as well. Again, I'm going to go back to the video because it ties into what we're talking about here. But those four measures, the third one I mentioned was give generously. The fourth one says to love missional, or love sacrificially, to love sacrificially. And that idea that love is sacrifice, that's the definition of agape love that Paul is referring to here. And that's the kind of love that God calls us to love one another sacrificially. And so I think, yeah, it's hard to love someone that doesn't like me, but it, it's even harder to love somebody that I have to give up something precious to me. If I have to give up my time, my energy, my resources to demonstrate that kind of love, that's hard to do. But that's the kind of love we've all been called to live out in our lives. I'm going to take a little, a little break here between Roman numeral one and Roman numeral two. Kind of an intermission, but just don't go anywhere. Uh, Every week, we produce a podcast called Beyond the Notes. How many of you have listened to that podcast? I'm just kind of curious. Yeah, several of you. The purpose of the Beyond the Notes podcast is for whoever preached that Sunday to, to go a little bit further than they were able to with time, or they wanted to go a little deeper in a subject. But this week, I'm going to do something quite different. I'm going to focus on helping all of us to prepare for Easter Sunday with resources, uh, things that you could use, uh, as well as ideas of things, even if you don't have any resources, things that you can do to prepare your heart for Easter the rest of this week. So I would encourage you to listen, listen in. It gets uh, released on Tuesday. You can listen to it anytime you want, but it, it's a podcast where you could maybe help you prepare for Easter. I also put on the outline a couple of resources that have been a blessing to me this season. The first one is a devotional book by Paul David Tripp called Journey to the Cross, and it has really blessed me. It's my second time going through it this Easter season. You don't have to do it just during Easter, but it is designed toward, toward Easter, toward the cross and Easter and the resurrection. And the other one is a book that I, I don't know how long it's been out, but I just came across it this, this season about a month and a half ago, and it has really blessed me. It's called The Heart of the Cross, and it's by two authors, Riken and Boyce, and it's just been a blessing to me. And so I just wanted to encourage you with those two resources that might be encouragement to you as well this season. All right, back to our regular scheduled sermon. Roman number two. Roman number two, God's atoning work. So we've seen God's amazing love and now we're going to look at God's atoning works. Let's read beginning in verse, verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So because of God's amazing love demonstrated on the cross, we can now experience his atoning work and salvation on the cross. 
And we talk about atonement a lot here, but let's make sure we have a, have a good definition, a good working definition of what we mean when we say atoning work or atonement. It's Christ's death on the cross as a substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. It's Christ's death on the cross as a substitutionary sacrifice for our sin. And that's what we mean when we say atonement, that, that Jesus bore the wrath from God's judgment that we deserved, that Jesus paid the penalty for our sins that we could not pay. That's atoning work of Christ on the cross, his death as a substitutionary sacrifice for our sin. And Paul is developing that idea here, and he's going to use two terms. He's going to use two terms. One is justify, and the other is reconcile. And we want to take some time to look at these two terms, because they're very important, because they, they, are, they, are, they deal with what happens when we come to know Christ, and because of the atoning work of Christ on the cross. We are justified and we are reconciled. So let's, let's take a look and see those two words. And, and we need to understand that the word justify, Paul's speaking to the judicial nature of that work, that atoning work. And when we see reconcile, Paul's speaking to the relational aspect or nature of that work of Christ on the cross. So we've got the judicial and the justify and the relational in the, recon, the reconcile. So let's start with letter A, that we are justified. Verse 9 says, we have now been justified by his blood. By the way, this is really, really good news for those of us in Christ, that we have been justified by his blood. It means that our standing before a holy God has changed, where we've gone from guilty to not guilty. In fact, the word justify means to declare not guilty, but it also means to declare righteous, that we have gone from guilty to not guilty, to unrighteous to righteous by the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That should get the biggest amen ever, amen? That we have, we have, have positional change in Christ from guilty before God to now we have been justified to not guilty. And not only are we not guilty, but we have the righteousness of Christ. It's as if the charges never existed. Those charges of our sin, the penalty of our sin, as if it never existed. And God sees us now, not as unrighteous, but as righteous. That's what he means when he says that we have been justified by his blood. We have been declared not guilty and righteous. Now, notice the means by which we are justified. He says here that we are justified by his blood. He's talking here about the sacrificial, substitutionary, atoning work of Jesus on the cross. That's how we're justified. And by the way, this goes against every fiber in our being because we have a deep desire to do something for ourselves. We think if we're going to have any kind of favor, any kind of merit from God, we have to earn that. In fact, most religions in this world have built their entire system based on what you can do to achieve that, what you must follow if you want to have eternal life or heaven or whatever they're promising, because that's how we're wired. Let's be honest. We all like, if there's a problem, hey, what do I need to do to fix this? That's kind of how we're wired, but this is so different because the work has already been done by Jesus on the cross some 2,000 years ago by the shedding of his blood. Amen? That's what being justified is all about. 
solely on the blood of Christ. There's a song that we're going to sing tonight. I say we. I'm, well, maybe I'll sing along. Uh, but a song that's going to be led tonight called No Other Fount. And this song, the words point to the justifying work of Jesus' blood on the cross. I want to read some of the words to you. And this will hopefully encourage you to want to be back here this evening as we have this time of worship together. But listen to these words. Nothing can for sin atone. Hope is found in you alone. Sin and death are overcome only by your precious blood. Only your blood has the power. There is no other, no other fount I know. Jesus, your love made a way. I love it. Your love made a way. No other fount I know can save. Thank you, Jesus, for your shed blood. But wait, there's more, Paul declares when he says in verse 9, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And so it's just thinking about our positional change in Christ should bring the hallelujahs and the praise the Lord's. But he said, wait, there's more. There's more because every sinner is destined to experience God's judgment and wrath. But because of our positional change in Christ, we will be spared God's wrath in judgment in that moment. And God's wrath and judgment, what do we mean when we talk about being spared from the wrath of God? That's what every sinner deserves. We talk about what, is it, what do we deserve as sinners? Hell. That's God's judgment and wrath for every person outside of Christ. And being inside of Christ, that positional change of justification, being justified, declared not guilty, righteous, we will not experience that wrath and judgment from God when that comes. Praise God. Letter B. Not only are we justified, we're also reconciled. We are reconciled to God. And now Paul moves out of the courtroom into the home and into the relationship arena. And to be reconciled simply means to restore a relationship, right? And there's nothing sweeter than having a relationship that's been, that's been broken, that's been, that's been hindered, uh, maybe an estranged relationship, to have it brought back together, that reconciliation, there's something extra precious and sweet and special about the relationship that comes, that's restored like that. And that's how Paul's describing us, that as, as, as sinners, as ungodly and righteous before God, our relationship is broke, it is wrecked. God sees us as a sinner, and we are deserving of his full judgment and wrath. But when we were justified, when we moved from being not guilty, I mean guilty to not guilty, unrighteous to righteous, in that moment, as well as being justified and made right, we also experienced this reconciliation with God in that moment. And Paul gets excited about that, because listen to what he says. For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by life. And he goes on and talks about the reconciliation in verse 11. We'll get to that in just a minute. But what does reconciliation with God look like? What does it mean? I think the simplest way to look at it is, is peace with God. That we have this restored relationship, this personal relationship with God, and we are at peace because before, it's described here, we were at odds against God. We were his enemies. He was our enemy. We were in this battle, in essence. But now it's been restored. There is this peace between us and our creator God, our heavenly father, that can only happen. Listen, that reconciliation, that peace can only happen through being justified, the justification by his blood. 
And that only happens for those in Christ, for those that have recognized their sin condition, realized that they are a sinner, that there's nothing, absolutely nothing they can do to get to God, to get to heaven on their own. And they confess that sin before God. They repent of that sin and place their faith and trust in what Jesus did for them on the cross. That's how we experience justification and reconciliation. So the judge has pronounced us righteous, and God the Father has welcomed us home. That's what we see in this justifying and reconciling that takes place as Paul describes these two aspects of the atoning work of Christ on the cross. And I'll be honest, when I begin to think, it starts with his amazing love that he initiated all this on, on, for a sinner like me. But then when I begin to think and meditate on what actually happened, what the work that Christ did on the cross, the atoning substitutionary sacrifice that he made so that I could be made right before God, be reconciled before God. That should blow our minds away. It should blow our minds away. Roman numeral three, our response. I love what Paul says here in verse 11. He says, more than that, and he keeps building, much more, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So what's your response to God's amazing love and his atoning work on the cross? What is, what is your response? Which brings me back to the big idea. And I started that this morning when I was, we were talking about we all have the tendency to boast. But Paul says we should only boast in the cross. And so the big idea says we boast in the cross because of God's amazing love demonstrated through his atoning work on the cross. And you might say, well, where does it say that we're supposed to boast in this passage? I'm glad you asked. Look at verse 11 again. When he says, more than that, we also rejoice. The word that Paul uses here, the Greek word that Paul uses is the exact same word he used in Galatians 6.14 when he says, I boast only in the cross of Christ. It's the exact same word, and it's one of those Greek words that has a depth and breadth of meaning that's hard to, to capture. There's not an English equivalent word that does it justice. And so sometimes it's used in a boast. Sometimes it's used as glory. Sometimes it's used as rejoice, to live in, all of these aspects. And that's what our response should be. That's what Paul says. We should, we should rejoice. We should boast. We should glory in the cross for those of us in Christ, that should be at the forefront of our minds on a regular basis. And I went, and I asked this question at the very beginning, you know, how much this past week, this past month, have you boast, boasted in Jesus? Have you boasted in the cross? We boast about a lot of things, but our response should be that we should rejoice, that we should boast, that we should glory in what God has done for us through his son, Jesus Christ. And as we enter into the Passion Week, that we have several days until Easter, a week from today, that you have a chance to dwell on this thought of what God has done for you, his amazing love, his sacrificial and unconditional love, and his atoning work, his justifying and reconciling work on the cross, that you have a time to let that sink deeply in as you think and dwell and meditate on God's word and what it says about his amazing love and atoning work for you as you prepare your heart for celebrating next Easter. What is your response this morning? If you're sitting here this morning and you think, well, ah, 
I don't, I don't get it. What do you, you know, what's the big deal about boasting in, in the cross? If you're struggling with understanding why we would get excited about boasting and glorifying Jesus and what he's done for us on the cross, perhaps you fail to really understand your true condition as a sinner. And I think that's the struggle for all of us to understand who we truly are, that I do fall short, that I have no chance to get to God in my own power and in my own strength and in my own abilities, that I have to come to that, rec- that realization that I am a sinner and I need a savior. Because apart from anybody being able to save me and I can't do it myself, I'm gonna spend eternity in hell. And it's upon that realization that you begin to realize I don't have a chance and hopefully you will look to Christ and see that amazing love and his atoning work for you. And that you will repent of your sins and confess by faith in Jesus and what he has done for you on the cross and allow him to be your savior, not yourself. And for those of us that are in Christ this morning, my prayer for you, and it's my same prayer, that this, this, these next few days will be an opportunity for us to reflect deeply on the cross. Because the deeper we reflect on the cross, I really believe the greater the celebration will be on Resurrection Sunday, right? When we see what he has done for us on the cross, we can't wait to get here on Sunday to celebrate with our brothers and sisters in Christ his resurrection power over sin and death. We're going to sing a song in just a minute that I think is a perfect response song for what we have just been talking about. It's entitled, Jesus, Thank You. And there are a lot of things we can thank Jesus for in our lives. But the thing that should be at the forefront of our thoughts as we thank Jesus is what he's done for us on the cross, right? That's what we've been talking about. Listen to the the chorus of the song we're going to sing in just a minute. Your blood has washed away my sins. We talked about justified by his blood. Your blood has washed away my sins. Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy, now seated at your table. Jesus, thank you.